Turn with me now, please, to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. Hear the Word of God as it comes to us this morning. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made, touching the King. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O Most Mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift, even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework, The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. May God bless the reading of His sacred word. Dear church family, you all know the story of Zacchaeus who couldn't see Jesus because a crowd was in the way. It's possible that you and I can be like that crowd. We can be obstacles in the way that prevent people from seeing Jesus. Our religion can be such that people would look at our lives and say, if if that's Christianity, I want nothing of it. A story was once told of a blind man who went around with a lantern on his arm. And someone asked him, why, when you're blind, why do you have a lantern with you? You can't see anyway. But the blind man said, 
I have this lantern on my arm to keep others from stumbling over me. You see, that's what Christians should be like. We should carry a lantern of uprightness, of gladness, of godliness in our Christian faith to keep others from stumbling over us. That we're not obstacles, but rather lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, anointed with the Holy Spirit to reflect Christ. So that the lantern, the Spirit's oil, pointing to the anointed Son of God, would be reflected in our talk and in our walk. The point of the story, spiritually, is that an anointed Christ and an anointed Christian, both possessing the light of the Holy Spirit, the oil, belong together. And that's our theme this morning. The anointed Christ and the anointed Christian. Our text is Psalm 45, 7b. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And we'll look at that in conjunction with Lord's Day 12, 31 and 32. Question 31, why is he called Christ that is anointed? Because he's ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. And to be our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. And also to be our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. 32. But why art thou called a Christian? Because... I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus am partaker of his anointing, that so I may confess his name and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and also that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures. So our theme this morning, Christ and the Christian richly anointed. And two simple thoughts, the anointed Christ, and we'll see that as prophet, priest, and king, and the anointed Christian, and we'll see that as prophet, priest, and king. Why is he called Christ? That is, anointed. Well, the catechism has already discussed the name Jesus last week, which is his personal name, And so today, it takes up the name Christ, which is his official name. It's like saying president in front of a man's name. That's the official title of Jesus. And that word in Greek and in Hebrew means anointed. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ, the anointed one. Jesus Christ. Jesus is a contraction 
of two words, Jehovah salvation, Jesus, Jehovah saves. That's his personal name. Christ, the anointed. That's what he does to save. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king to do everything, absolutely everything that you need to have done for you to be saved. So he's our office bearer, our anointed one. Now, anointings were common already in the Old Testament to various offices. You know that well, I think. Aaron was anointed with holy oil into the priestly office, and the oil ran down his beard and his clothing. David, a shepherd boy, was anointed by Samuel to become king over Israel. Elisha was anointed by Elijah to become his successor and prophet of the Lord. But no one in the Old Testament was anointed to all three offices. No one but Jesus. Prophet, priest, and king. And all Old Testament anointings were done with a horn of oil, which was limited. The oil would run out. Everyone was anointed in the Old Testament in measure. Jesus, however, was anointed, witness his baptism, when the Spirit came down in the form of a dove, with the Holy Spirit himself in fullness of measure. His anointing is unlimited. It's glorious. It's with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, all anointings basically mean two things. They symbolize the Holy Spirit doing two things. First, appointment. Appointing someone to an office, ordaining them into an office. And second, qualifying them for that office. So when you think of the word anointing, you've got to think of these three things. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit does the anointing. Secondly, Holy Spirit anoints by appointing a man to an office. And third, the Holy Spirit anoints by qualifying the man for that office. Now, in the case of Jesus, you see, he was really appointed from eternity past in the eternal council of peace. When God the Father, reverently speaking, asked this question of his elect children, how shall I put thee among the children and give thee a pleasant land? How, when everyone is a sinner, can I find a way of salvation for lost and ruined sinners? And we read in Revelation 5, No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book neither to look thereon. No one was able to solve this mystery. Even the angels in heaven couldn't understand how God could ever have mercy on fallen sinners. But there's one who could open the book. It's Jesus, the Christ, the anointed. And that was the one who was appointed from all eternity. Everyone had to be silent under this question. No angel could answer it. No human being could answer it. No intellect, no power, no wisdom, no righteousness could answer this question. But Jesus said, Lo, my Father, I come. I come to do Thy will in the volume of the book 
it is written of me. And so Jesus took it upon himself, you see, to be the anointed, to do the impossible, to be the prophet, priest, and king, to actually save all those to whom the Father had given him. And so the Father in Christ found a way in which he could reveal his hatred towards sin and yet his love towards sinners. A way in which he could reveal his wrath against sin and yet his love toward his elect. A way in which he could glorify all his attributes himself and at the same time save sinners. And so God the Father from eternity, determined to appoint His Son. And His his Son accepted that appointment. And the Holy Spirit agreed to anoint that Son in the fullness of time. And oh, what a what an anointed one. The servant of the Father, as Isaiah calls Him, really was and is even today. But to fulfill that appointment, you see, He had to be qualified. And to to be qualified, he had to have the Holy Spirit without measure exercising these prophetic, priestly, kingly ministrations in the power of that Spirit. And that's what happened when he came in the fullness of time. The Spirit not only was poured out upon him in his appointment, in his baptism, but the Spirit went with him every step of the way. You know, if you did a study of all the things that Jesus did in the Gospels, over and over and over again, you see references to the Holy Spirit. That anointing Spirit helped him, sustained him. When he crawled on the ground as a worm in no man in Gethsemane, as he went to Golgotha, as he paid the price of being qualified in our human nature. His divine nature, of course, needed no qualification. He was perfect. But in our human nature. He had to be qualified, bringing the human to the divine nature, so that in his one divine person, he could sustain the wrath of God against our sins, and he could obey the law perfectly, loving God above all, loving his neighbor as himself, so that he could be the sinless mediator, fully qualified to be our Savior, the anointed Christ. And what a glorious thing this is. No one else could even come close to doing it. And that's why in Psalm 45, we read that Jesus is anointed in this wonderful psalm that speaks of this, uh, this marriage between the bridegroom and the bride, but focuses also in the middle of the psalm upon the bridegroom, upon Jesus himself. Verse 7 makes clear that the Father anoints God, God anoints God, that is, God anoints the Son of God with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. In other words, God gives Jesus the graces of the Holy Spirit in his human nature to fulfill his mission as prophet, priest, and king so that he could co-labor with the two other persons of the Trinity to bring about the salvation of every elect sinner. So Christ, as man and mediator, 
is anointed with the Spirit's gifts and graces, not just physical oil, so that Acts 10.38 could be confirmed, which says, God the Father anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now this is called the oil of gladness in our text. To allude to the use of oil at feasts and weddings in order to refresh and rejoice traveling guests. In other words, the Spirit's anointing of Jesus made His ministry a ministry in itself, one of joy and peace and gladness. A ministry in which He Himself said that those who partake of His anointing will be full of joy and peace. I will set you free and your joy shall be full when you're in me, he tells his disciples. And so Jesus, as the Christ, the anointed, possesses an unspeakable gladness. Jesus was a truly happy man, despite being a man of sorrows. He was happy within himself because he was doing his Father's will. And he was truly glad through his own anointing by the Holy Spirit that he may bring in salvation for his own. And he was truly glad through his actual work of saving his people. He did it willingly, voluntarily, joyfully, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. This is amazing. Anointed to suffer to die, to rise again, but doing it with the oil of gladness, with the Holy Spirit filling him with eternal, spiritual, profound joy, joy and love for his Father, for his people, so that all honor and glory would accrue to the triune God and that his people would be saved with joy in him. And then the text goes on to say, this anointing of the Christ is above all other anointings. It says this, above thy fellows. It means to say that the Spirit's anointing on Jesus was in full measure, as I already said. But may I say it this way, it's beyond measure. It's beyond anything that any other believer would ever experience. In heaven even. Believers will be anointed with the Spirit in just a wonderfully full measure. But it's not quite like Christ. Christ is a prophet par excellence, a priest par excellence, a king par excellence. He possesses this anointing so fully, so perfectly, without ever having sinned one sin, that he can, out of his anointing, perfectly meet all your needs as prophet, priest, and king. And then to this superlative anointing of Jesus above his fellows points to the fact that he will be exalted after he humbles himself to death as he is now. And one day when he comes again, he'll be exalted even more. His anointing will be obvious to all the millions gathered around the throne of the Lamb. And that anointing will be forever always affirming from every single second in heaven the success of His mission. 
and the radiant joy that will exude from Him in His eternal exaltation as He's surrounded with His blood-bought people forever with Him in glory, made perfect through His anointing. You know that I have a brother with 13 children, all married, and I've seen him at times when his whole family's around him. And he just sits there and he looks around. Those 57 grandchildren, 26 children, and he just kind of soaks it in. And you can see the joy. You can see the joy exuding from him. This large family. You don't have to ask him what he's thinking. You know. God's been good. God's gracious. What a covenant-keeping God. Can you imagine Jesus on the throne? As far as he can see in every direction, millions upon millions upon millions of his family, all his brothers and sisters, all saved by his perfect, powerful spirit anointing, all fruits of his prophetical, priestly, kingly office. What joy. Here am I, Father, and all those whom thou hast given me. And imagine the anointed from his anointing, which is you and me, dear believer. Imagine the joy we'll feel in that day. Yes, our anointing cannot be equated to Christ. But yet we will be kings and priests and prophets with Christ. And we shall be holy as Christ. And we shall reign forever with Him. For we will be consecrated entirely to Him. We are not our own. But we are bought with a price. The price of His anointing. The price of Gethsemane, Gabbatha, Golgotha blood. And so by the oil of His Spirit, we are qualified to serve Him, even here and now. But once perfectly, as renewed prophets, renewed priests, renewed kings, having restored to us what we lost in paradise. And so by His Spirit, we too are anointed, and we too are healed and saved. And by His Spirit, we are supplied and strengthened. By His Spirit, we are beautified with office-bearing graces, whether it be in the church, whether it be in our own homes as fathers and mothers, or whether it just be as Christians, as salt in the earth, so that we too may possess the oil of gladness. What a joy it is to serve Him as teaching prophets, sacrificial priests, and guiding kings in this world. Thomas Scott says it so beautifully, kind of summarizes everything I've been saying in his commentary when he says this, God the Father as His God in respect of His human nature and His mediatorial offices has given the Holy Spirit without measure that being thus anointed to be our prophet, priest, and king, He might have the preeminency in the gladdening gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and from that fullness might communicate them to His fellows, His brethren in human nature. Wow. This name, Christ, is a beautiful name. It actually takes in all of salvation. It takes in everything you need, and it does it with radiant joy. Joy 
the joy of Jesus above his fellows. Now, let's look at these three offices then, this threefold office, I should say. The Catechism says, first of all, Christ is our prophet. To, to be our chief prophet and teacher has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Well, that was prophesied, wasn't it? Already way back in Deuteronomy. You remember that the people of Israel often didn't like to listen to Moses. They murmured against him. Rather depressing for Moses, of course. But then the Lord encouraged Moses with a great wonder. He said to him, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. That's Jesus. Moses was encouraged that though he tried to be a prophet to the people of Israel and a leader, he often failed, and they often failed to obey him when they should have. But there was one coming, the Messiah coming, Jesus, the Christ, who could say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He would be a prophet who would teach as no one had done before him, Moses says. Unto him the people shall hearken. So our instructors say, not just Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is the chief prophet. The chief prophet. There's no one like him. There's no one who speaks with his authority. There's no one who speaks with his power, his conviction, the depth of his truth, the simplicity of language he uses to express it. How amazing it is that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is such an incredible teacher, a better teacher than all earthly teachers combined. And he will teach us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our salvation. And when he teaches us, it's powerful. We're not talking just here about head knowledge, about learning some facts about God and Christ and the Bible and the way of salvation. We need something more, don't we? We need to be taught how wretchedly sinful we are. How desperately we need this glorious Savior Himself. How we've sinned against so much light. And you see, this is what Jesus does. By His Spirit, by the oil with which He's anointed, He convicts sinners. He makes room for Himself. Especially through preaching. The kingdom of God comes not with observation, the Bible says. The marginal notes say, with outward show. It's not just a, well, I go to church on Sunday. I I go to a conservative church. I'm baptized. I do this. I'm a Sunday school teacher. Whatever. No, no, no. Do you know this chief prophet teacher teaching you your sinfulness, your depravity, your need for Him? Has He opened your eyes to see your need for salvation? To behold Him as the simple, powerful, true, real Savior. See, when Christ comes to teach us, He does exactly what He did with the travelers to Emmaus. He opens their understanding by teaching things concerning Himself through the Scriptures. It's all about Jesus. Jesus on every page. That's what Jesus does. He opens our eyes as needy, lost sinners, stripped of our own righteousness for His righteousness, His glory, His beauty, His fullness. 
And then we understand, you see, not just up here, but the depth of our being, that we need the double obedience of Jesus, His passive obedience to pay for our sins, suffering and dying for us, His active obedience, obeying the law to earn for us the right of eternal life, and that we receive that double obedience only by faith, receiving Him, so that He and His double obedience is imputed to us and our sins imputed to Him, And through that faith, as a means in His hand, we are saved forever. He teaches us that. And when He teaches us that, that is powerful, that is joyful, that is overwhelming. And what happens to us? Well, same thing that happened to the travelers to Emmaus. When He opens our understanding... And applies the scriptures to our hearts. And we see Christ everywhere. The anointed. As our only hope. Our sufficient hope. Our powerful hope. The end result is our hearts are burning within us. As he opens the scriptures. And we begin to understand the gospel. In the inner man. And it's as if we have a new Bible. And a new light falls on the scriptures. And our hearts burn with passion as we read about the fullness of Him who was despised and rejected of men, who hung on the cross for my sake, and who now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for me and caring for me. As we learn of Him, our hearts just enlarge. They augment itself as we treasure this glorious Savior. Then we experience inwardly what David said, Thou settest my feet in a large room. That's a Hebraic expression. You've blessed me with an incredible amount of blessing. I can't take it all in. It's so big. It's so pregnant. It's so full. That's what Jesus is for His people. Glorious, glorious Savior. He's everything. For God has made Him unto us wisdom and righteousness, that's justification, and sanctification and redemption. Those four words summarize everything you could possibly need for your salvation. And He's not only a prophet to teach you the way to Jesus, He's also a a prophet to sanctify you once you're in Jesus. Once you found your life in Jesus, he's a prophet that teaches you that he must increase the more, and you must decrease the more. He continues to empty you of all your own righteousness and to fill you with all his own righteousness. And that's really what sanctification is all about, being made holy. We become less and Christ becomes more. You remember perhaps that story of a, a girl who she didn't have many intellectual abilities and she took a confession of faith class and came in front of her consistory and they asked, they asked a few questions and she, she couldn't articulate the answers well and the elders didn't quite know what to do. Should she take the class again? So they dismissed her and they would talk about it. And you can understand their dilemma. But as she was being exited out of the room, lovingly, by an elder, she just kind of said under her breath, 
I just don't know anything at all, it seems. But all I know is that Jesus is my all in all, and He must increase and I must decrease. And the elder said, what did you say? Can you repeat that? And she repeated, and he said, you come back in the room. You say that to the elders. She said that to the elders, and they said, we, we accept you into membership. You see, this is the heart of it. He's my prophet. He's my chief prophet who teaches me the way of salvation. He teaches me that he is all in and all, and I am nothing at all. What a glorious prophet he is. Do you know him? He's your prophet. Has he taught you this? That all your righteousness is in Christ? Do you, do you just love him as a teacher? Do you love, as painful as it can be sometimes, the way he takes you down and kills your own righteousness and builds you up in his righteousness? John Kelvin said, the prophet Christ is the one who reveals the priest Christ. You see, a good part of Jesus' teaching is, is teaching us about Jesus Christ as the priest. Our instructor says, he's our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. So this is this wonderful priest the Christ who's given His life for us, given His body for us, and continually makes intercession for us now. Two great, great aspects. There are more, but two of the greatest aspects of His priesthood. You see, no priest in the Old Testament could ever say it is finished. No priest in the Old Testament could ever say, you've brought enough sacrifices now, Israelite. No, they had to keep bringing sacrifices because the blood pointed to the Messiah to come. It was never enough. They could never say, we can close the door of the temple. God's justice is satisfied. Your sins are pardoned. They always had to say to the people, the fire of the altar demands more. But Jesus could say, as God-man, as the eminently qualified anointed one, it is finished. And the temple of the veil is rent from top to bottom. It is all done. It is no more needed because he has offered his blood once for all as the great high priest. For one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And then he makes intercession. Now, he's risen, he's ascended. And he's always making intercession in heaven. His work continues. Not his work of humiliation, but his work of exaltation. He's even at the right hand of God, says Paul, Romans 8, 34, who also maketh intercession for us. And Hebrews 7, 25 says, he does that continually, every single moment. He's always working. He's never sleeping. The fact that Christ intercedes continually for His people, both corporately in their totality and individually, as if each one were His only child, from moment to moment, ought to bear mega fruit in your life if you're a Christian. What kind of fruit, you say? 
Well, let me just give you four, four quick things. Constant reliance, number one. Constant reliance. The doctrine of Christ's intercession. Well, that should say to you, if he's interceding for me every single moment, I may rely upon him in any single moment. And he'll never give me something that's too great for me to bear. I constantly ought to rely on my exalted, anointed one. And then number two, strong consolation. What comfort the intercession of Christ is. He's gone into heaven before me as my forerunner to intercede for me. To confirm God's unbreakable promise that He swore with an oath in Hebrews 6, 17-20. That He will bless us. So if Christ's death reconciled us to God when we were His enemies, how much more will His living intercessory ministry keep us exulting in hope that we shall be saved and one day be with Him forever? So no matter what happens to me in life, I've got the main thing. I've got the main person. I've got everything I need. I've got the strong consolation as my forerunner sitting at the right hand of the Father. And He's promised to bring me to be with Him where He is. Strong consolation. And thirdly, quickness to confess. If Jesus is my intercessor and He's praying for me from moment to moment, I should keep a short account with Him. When I sin, I should not remain silent, letting it boil up inside of me like David did, sadly, for nine to twelve months after he sinned against Bathsheba, as he confesses in Psalm 32. But I ought to immediately confess my sin with faith in Christ's propitiation and Christ's intercession. For He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Quickness to confess. Because He's always there to hear me. And He's always ready to forgive based on His own work. And fourthly, comfort in prayer. What a comfort in prayer it is to know that He's praying for me all the time. You know, do you have what I have? I'm I'm sure you do. You just feel like so many of your prayers are lousy. Distant, cold, formal. And you say amen, you say, oh, it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. But you know what the comfort is? You're going to an older brother who loves you. And he doesn't mind hearing the same things time and time again. Because you're his brother. And he's got perfect wording in his prayers with his father. And he will take up your poor prayers and sanctify them with the salt of his own soul sufferings. And he'll present them acceptable to his Father on your behalf. And so it's such a comfort in prayer that either when our prayers are poor or when we're so overwhelmed we can't even scarcely pray. We can scarcely get the word Lord out because we're so overwhelmed. He's praying for us. What a comfort that is. Sometimes we just have to say, Lord Jesus, pray for me. I can't pray for myself. And He will. And He does. 
What a comfort this is. And then Christ is King. Also, to be our eternal King who governs us by His Word and Spirit and who defends and preserves us the enjoyment of that salvation He has purchased for us. What would we do without the kingship of Christ? It's wonderful that He's a priest to save us and to pray for us. It's wonderful He's a prophet to teach us. But I need someone to guide me. I need someone to defend me. I need someone to set up His throne in my heart, in my affections, and in my will. I need someone to rule over me. To subject my conscience to the will of God. I need someone who has a shield to defend me. Well, that's Jesus. He defends and preserves His people from the right hand of the Father. Never sleeping, never slumbering. Day by day. He performs far too many kingly acts in His reign over His people. Over us, dear children of God. To be mentioned in one sermon. I once preached a whole sermon just on this. Like 12 different ways. He works in our life as, as king. Let me just mention three of them this morning. Christ reigns in righteousness over his people. That's glorious. And he does that by appointing ministers in the church. To teach you. To guide you. Richard Sibb said, ministers, ordained ministers, are the second greatest New Testament gift behind the Holy Spirit because they unpack the Word of God for us. He does it by directing the church's worldwide mission. As king, he doesn't only pronounce his great commission, but he thrusts forth missionaries and mission workers into the white and ready harvest. But most of all, he does it by breathing life into his church on earth by his Spirit. He breathes the very spirit with which he's anointed into his church, through his preached word, through the holy sacraments, liberating his people by his truth, and setting them free with a kingly power, and equipping them with servant gifts and spiritual gifts, and reigning over his church from heaven. But then also as king, secondly, Christ doesn't only reign in righteousness over His people, but He loves the church as His bride. He loves His church on earth as His bride. He's their bridegroom. He reigns over the church as its authoritative head and as spiritual husband at the same time as His own body and flesh, as it were, spiritually speaking, tenderly nourishing, cherishing her, under word and sacrament. And then thirdly, Christ conquers the enemies of God as King. He restrains the powers of evil. He judges the nations. He converts the lost and rescues Satan's captives. He leads God's army into spiritual battle. And He will execute final judgment. Your King will take care of you, dear child of God. Everything will be well in the end. And every wrong will be righted. And every sorrow will turn to joy. Let's sing before we look at the anointed Christian briefly. Now it's fascinating that the catechism, when discussing the four primary names of Christ that are in the Apostles' Creed, 
from Lord's Day 11 through 13. Two more in the next Lord's Day. Suddenly interrupts this discussion of Christ's names and says, but why are you called a Christian? No other confessional reform document does this. It's a stroke of genius. Really it is. Because you see, the Christian is inseparable from the Christ. Acts 11.26 says, And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Why? Well, the citizens of Antioch, both the heathens and the Jews, were watching the Christians. They watched how they spoke. They watched how they acted, how they lived. And they were saying to each other, You know, those people that follow this man named Jesus, they, they, they seem like Jesus. They, they live like Jesus. They seem to think like Jesus. They speak like Jesus. They, they act like Jesus. So they gave them the nickname. You're, you're a Christian. Like, oh, that's a terrible thing. And the Christians said, first they thought, well, that is a bad name because it's a, it's a mockery. But then they thought, you know, the word Christian really in Greek, could be translated, a little Christ. This is, this is really what we want to be. We want to be more and more like Christ. So, actually, this is an honorable name. This is a beautiful name. To be a Christian. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, our instructor begins his answer, because I'm a member of Christ by faith, and thus am a partaker of His anointing. So you can't be a Christian without being a partaker of Christ's anointing. That is, you can't be a Christian without being united to Christ by faith. And to be united to Christ by faith means that Christ lives in me and dwells in me by His Spirit. So a Christian is someone who can say, my hope is, that I'm a member of Christ and partaker of His anointing. I don't ha- know Christ as well as I wish I knew Him. That's true. But I do know something of His influences in me. I do know something of His Spirit dwelling in me. Therefore, I know something of Him indwelling in me. He's my life. He's my hope. He's my all and in all. I said already that when Aaron was anointed with oil, holy oil, it ran down upon his beard and went down to the skirts of his garments. That's a picture of Jesus Christ, that the Spirit of Christ descends upon all the members of His mystical body. The oil of that Spirit that flows out of Christ touches and impacts and indwells every single Christian. So if Christ is a complete stranger to you, you're not a Christian. You have to know what it means to be able to say at least at least to some degree, even a small degree. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. See, by nature, we're, well, we're far from Christ, aren't we? We're without Christ, alienated from Him. We have no saving knowledge of Him. But it's the privilege of God's people. It's the privilege of God's people to receive saving knowledge of Christ by the same anointer that Christ was anointed with by the Holy Spirit 
who forms Christ in our heart, who makes room for Christ in our heart, who forms Him there, so that we too love His appearing. As Paul said, I'm ready to die. The righteous judge shall give me at that day a crown of righteousness, and not to me only, but to all them who love His appearing. To be a Christian is to love the appearing of Jesus Christ. It's to love to find Him in His Word. It's to love to hear about Him in a sermon. It's to love to treasure Him in in quiet prayer in my daily devotions. It's to love to live out of Him day by day. It's to love to touch the hem of His garments, so to speak, by faith, trusting in Him alone that He can heal my soul. Whether it's weak faith, like that woman who touched the hem of His garment, or like the thief on the cross who just said, Lord, remember me. Or whether it's strong faith, like Paul speaking in full assurance of faith. That isn't the great question. It's great to have great and full assurance. But the basic question is, are you a Christian? And the basic answer is, union with Christ by faith makes me a Christian. So even if I cannot say all the time, or maybe only once in a while, my beloved is mine and I am his with full assurance, but I'm united with Christ in my convictions, in my purposes, in in my will, in my aspirations, in my desires. You see, then I'm I'm united with him. And I feel like Peter Lord, Thou knowest all things. I don't love Thee the way that I should, but Thou knowest that I love Thee. Thou knowest that Thou art my life. For a Christian, Christ is His first love. Christ is His only and all-sufficient hope for salvation. Christ is our treasure, the altogether lovely One, the chief among 10,000. Without Christ in the heart, we can be ever so religious But we're really not much more than a hypocrite, are we? Because we're not true Christians. Others can't look at us and see Christ in us or Christ emanating from us. You see, legal piety and self-made righteousness do not make Christians. Only Christ makes Christians. And only Christ makes Christians by His Spirit, through union with Him, through faith, receiving Him as my only hope. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you're alive, you get your sap from me. You live out of me, Jesus said. Without me, you can do nothing. And so what is the fruit that we exemplify when we're Christians? Well, we become little Christ, in this sense I put it in quotation marks, in the sense that we, if we're Christians, we become office bearers that follow Jesus. We're not prophets as a capital P, but we are with a small p. Ditto priests. And we're not kings with a capital K. He's only that. But we are with a small k. Kings or queens, you might say. So, what does it mean to be a, as a prophet, priest, and king as a Christian? Well, our instructor tells us. I'm a member of Christ by faith and thus am partaker of His anointing. That's so. And here it comes. This is what happens when you're a Christian. I may confess his name. That's being a prophet. 
and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to Him. That's being a priest. And also that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and afterwards reign with Him eternally over all creatures. That's being a king. So let me give you just a couple of quick things before I close. A Christianist prophet is someone who's anointed, first of all, to know the truth of Christ. The truth of Christ. If I'm a Christian, I'm a prophet that really believes that he is not just the way, but he's the truth. He has everything I need. I believe that with all my heart. Also, Christians, if we're prophets, are empowered to witness for Christ. We we cannot stay silent about this glorious... We found the answer for what life is all about. With our walk, most importantly. But also with our talk. We want to witness for Him. No one can be saved without Him. You've got the best news in the world. You feel this holy compulsion. You've got to share it. You, you don't know how to share it properly sometimes. Sometimes you, you, you're guilty because you, you feel like you didn't share it when you had an opportunity to. But this is your desire. Empower me, Lord, to witness for this glorious Savior. And then third, Christians as prophets are equipped to edify Christ's body. They want, to, they want to work in the church. They want to be a source of good. They want to use whatever gifts they have for the well-being of the church. Church to a Christian is not just taking in, it's also giving out. I want to edify the body of Christ. And number four, Christians are illuminated to praise Christ. I want my life to be just a constant praise to Him. He's worthy of praise at every moment. I want to confess His name, says our instructor, in all these ways and and more. And then to be a priest, to be a priest means I want to put my faith in Christ's priestly sacrifice alone. I rely on Christ alone to deliver me from the punishment I deserve. I don't even look to try to merit 1% of my righteousness before God. I know very well I have none to offer Him. And 100% of my righteousness before God is the righteousness of Christ. And so I trust in that. And I rest my hope in Christ's perfect obedience to the law as my right to eternal life. And so as a priest, I want to run the race of obedience in imitation of Christ. I want to bear fruit for Him. I want to obey Him with a, with a priestly heart of consecration and dedication. I want to present my entire life, says our instructor, as a living sacrifice of thankfulness to Him. Live holy for Him. Like... Uh, one, one of our former members who's now with the Lord used to say at the end of every prayer I've ever heard him pray, Lord, help us to live holy and solely for Jesus. That's the mindset. That's the mindset of a priestly Christian. I want that sacrificial life of living for him, not for me. A sacrificial life of repentance. A sacri- I want to sacrifice self. I want a sacrificial life of praise to him. I want a sacrificial life of intercession for others. I, I want a sacrificial life of, of just being more Christ-centered. I want to be a priest.
flowing out of my great high priest. And then I want to be a king. As kings, you see, we want to, whatever we have to lead, we want to do it graciously like Christ does. A gracious spiritual reign. I want to, I want to exercise leadership as a parent or as a teacher or as an office bearer or, or just in guiding other Christians. I want to do it graciously, humbly. I want to do it in the spirit of Him who is meek and lowly and yet almighty. I want to do it with authority, but loving authority, like Jesus. I want to do it with noble faith and a good conscience. I want to do it with overcoming power. I want to be more than conquerors through Him who loved me. I want to guide others with conviction, with purposeful stewardship. I want to live to my King, knowing I owe everything back to Him that He has given me. Knowing that on the great day of days, He's going to ask about the stewardship of my child-rearing, the stewardship of my ministry, the stewardship of my work, the stewardship of every area of my life. And I want to be able to say on that day, Lord, though I have many shortcomings, Thou knowest I tried, I tried to do it as a steward unto the King of kings, as a steward unto Thee. I wanted to give back the oil of joy, of gladness, with which Thou hast anointed me. I wanted to fight against sin and Satan in this life. And I did, Lord, albeit with many shortcomings. But I did all this because I also desire to reign with Thee forever, hereafter, as the Catechism says, over all creatures. Well, that's what it means to be a prophet, priest, and king in this life. Let me close this sermon by just laying before you the takeaway, the ultimate takeaway question of this sermon. And it's this. What think ye of Christ? A Christian is someone who's got high thoughts of Christ. Someone said to John Newton, what is the biggest mark of grace of all? And Newton wrote him back in a little poem, just four lines. Here it is. What think ye of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest until you think rightly of Him. That's the test, you see. What think ye of Christ? Boys and girls, what, what, what do you think of Jesus? Jesus Christ. Do you love Him? Jesus says, forbid children not to come to Me. In other words, children come to Me. For of such is the kingdom of God. What do you think of Jesus Christ? Teenagers. That Savior who says to you, my son, my daughter, give Me your heart. What do you think of Jesus Christ? Adults, seniors, friends. What do you think of that Savior who says to you, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but ye would not. Are you pushing away Jesus Christ, the anointed? 
the only answer to this life, the only one in whom you can find purpose and meaning and joy. What a tragedy that would be. What a tragedy. Well, you say, but I'm, I'm so busy in life. I, I hear about Christ, but I, I'm just not aware of my sin enough to even need Him, it seems. Uh, I, just, I just don't have room in my life for Christ. Well, if you think that lightly of Christ's mercy, let me then ask you what you think of His wrath. What do you think of Him as a judge? What do you think of the wrath of the Lamb of God that will be revealed one day to all who have said of Christ, I have no pleasure in Him? How do you plan to stand before the judge of judges on the great day if you don't love His appearance? If Christ is just a name to you, Jesus is just a name to you, And you've never cried out, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. How will you stand before Him? If you don't desire the whole Christ, His prophet, priest, and king, and you don't desire His salvation and His government to be your Savior, to be your ruler, and to come under Him, what will you do when you come to the Jordan of death? You will perish forever. Blessed are they who can say, what do I think of Christ? I think He's altogether lovely. He's the chief among 10,000. He's precious to me as prophet. His lessons are sweet. Grace is poured into His lips. He's precious to me as priest. I love Him as a suffering, bleeding, interceding mediator. I cherish Him. In His humiliation and exaltation. I love Him as King for His meekness and strength with which He reigns over me. I love His gentle governorship. His wise governorship. His firm governorship. I, I love the way He rebukes me in love. For even His rebukes are mingled with mercy. This is my beloved. This is my prophet, my priest. My King of Zion, He is altogether lovely. He is the chief among 10,000. He is white and ruddy. So yes, I must be a Christian. Because I'm united with Him. By faith. And partaker of His anointing. Oh Lord Jesus, help me to live in this world as a prophet, priest, and king, faithful to Thee. That's a Christian's confession. Is it yours? He's available. Don't run from Him. Run to Him. Amen. Great God of heaven, we ask Thy benediction upon this sermon. Oh, we pray, open the eyes of those who are yet spiritually blind. Let them have the real light, the light of the Holy Spirit and the oil of joy for gladness and open their eyes and let them carry the lantern of Christ everywhere and not be obstacles for others, but be gateways for others. 
to show them the way, the truth, and the life in the prophet, priest, king, Jesus Christ. Bless thy people. Help them to feed on Christ abundantly and make all things well. Go with us further in this day. In Jesus' name, amen.